Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary. We're, uh, as the name of the podcast is, we're getting into theology. We're continuing our reading of John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, and we're now finally in the fourth book of the Institutes, and we're yep. getting into a lot of the nitty-gritty of ecclesiology, and we'll get into things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I guess, uh, like, political theology as well at the end. Yep. Um, I think those are the main sort of topics. Um, so as we get going, we're in chapters four and five here, and these are kind of, I guess, just by big picture summary, Calvin's talking about the, the ancient church, um, its organization, and then in chapter five is contrasting that with the contemporary or present church, and his argument is the present church has kind of fallen away from what the early church's model was, and how closely the early church followed scripture. And my guess, although he doesn't quite say it this way, but my guess is he's trying to say like, Basically, the reformers are much more aligned with the early church than the present form of the Roman church. Yep. So you're kind of talking about like, um, well, maybe just at the, at the beginning, it's really interesting, just as a big picture question. Is Calvin okay um, uh, in church to do things that are not explicitly written down in scripture? Like, is he okay to have a bishop that's the head of the presbyters? not just a, an equal presbyter. Is he okay with um, having canons from councils and things like that? What do you think from your reading? It, yeah, it's interesting. This whole, the whole opening section, really, like the first half of, of book four, chapter four, he's kind of doing this, as you say, this kind of like traversing early church history and setting up at least uh, a, a framework for how they organize their ecclesiastical structures. And then, uh, and what the roles of these various offices were. And Calvin, when we've read through the rest of the institutes or up to this point, you know, he seems very, very much on what you would call the regular principle style, right? The, the approach of, uh, to worship or anything like that, that says, um, unless you have explicit sanction from scripture, you don't, you don't do whatever, you don't have smells and bells or you don't have a rock band or something like that, right? Um, and so he seems like a regular, he, he's kind of like a poster boy for a regular principle of worship. But then when you get to this chapter, he really seems to allow for um, things that aren't quite in scripture, uh, but he allows for them um, for prudential reasons. And the premier example of this in this whole section is the bishop, right? Uh, we don't think of Calvin and think of him as somebody who is favorable to Episcopal Episcopal church structures. He's the great Presbyterian, at least, or forefather of the Presbyterians. Um, and yet here, I kept thinking, oh, he sounds more like, a, you know, the so-called hooker approach, the Richard Hooker approach to, to, to worship. It's not the regular principle, but more kind of normative where, yeah, scripture is going to set a paradigm, but you can use reason and, mm -hmm. and uh, prudence for situations to be able to deviate not deviate from the spirit of scripture but deviate from at least the law the, the letter of the law of scripture um, which i just found this very fascinating and i couldn't really so i was going to try to do a little bit of background research on it i really couldn't find like a hard and fast here's calvin on bishops this is what he did you know and so it, it's weird like in a lot of the analyses of the institutes whether it's tony lane's or ford lewis battles or whatever nobody really gets into it um yeah so i thought that was curious um Normally, we uh, would read a passage of Calvin to start. So I actually might do that now. We kind of yeah, go for it. in chapter four in section one. I think it's interesting his um, description of the ancient church. He says, for even though the bishops of those times promulgated many canons, 
by which they seem to express more than was expressed in, in scripture. Still, they conform their establishment with such care to the unique pattern of God's word that you may readily see that it had almost nothing in this respect alien to God's word. But though something might be wanting in their arrangements, yet because they tried with sincere effort to preserve God's institution and did not wander from it, it will be most profitable here briefly to ascertain what sort of observance they had. In other words, he seems to say they did things that were not like a Bible verse, right? Right. But when you actually analyze what they're doing, it accords with scripture. And therefore, it's actually entirely useful to look at what they do, to learn from, to understand, even though they had canons and, and regulations and rules and the way they ordain people, maybe it was a little bit different. His entire point is there's all this diversity, but it actually accords with scripture still. So, so I kind of wonder with Calvin, like sometimes when we think of like, we only do church uh, according to scripture, we could either mean A, only if there's a Bible verse that says it, do we do it? Yeah. Or we could mean B, is what we're doing representing the theology, the, the structure of scripture? And it looks like Calvin's more like B here. Yeah. So you could have canons, which are just like local church, or well, in this case, regional and, and Catholic church rules. But I think of like, for example, in my local church, sometimes if there's a new issue of the day, the elders will have an announcement and that'll kind of, or, or something that might bind us in our, in our church covenant or membership. And that's not like necessarily a Bible verse, but it is some practical outworking of, of the script of, of scriptural Christianity. And I think Calvin's there. So I know people talk, um, I, I always forget the name of the regulative and the, the other principle Yeah, the normative and the normative. So maybe we could say Calvin's at least in this chapter, a little bit more regulative, but, but not in the sense of the A sense, but in the B sense. And if he, if he is, he might be a little bit more um, elastic than we, than our categories today allow for. Yeah. It's interesting when you just think historically about it too, because he's obviously very close with Martin Butzer, um, mm. Butzer you know, uh, kind of mentored him, you could say, uh, when Calvin was uh, spending a bit of time in, in, in Strasbourg. And then Butzer and Vermeule are two of the major architects of the English Reformation, which is very Episcopally structured. Yeah. You know? Um, and from what I can remember, I think Calvin wrote to, there's, a, there's an Episcopal kind of church in Poland that he was pretty favorable towards in terms of their, their church governance. But then when he runs the consistory, it is different, right? It does fit more with what you would think of as a Presbyterian style church government. But you can't deny the fact that when you read just on page 1069, under number two there, it says the position of bishop, he says, all those to whom the teaching, the office of teaching was enjoined, they called presbyters. He's talking about the early church. In each city, these chose one of their number to whom they specially give the title bishop in order that dispensation or sorry, dissensions might not arise as commonly happens from equality of rank. And he does, you know, use bishop and presbyter as one and the same. He notes that in the next paragraph when he's talking about Paul to or, uh, Jerome, Jerome uh, commenting on Titus, and yet uh, because of this custom he gets to in the bottom there, and then over onto 1070, yeah, presbyter and or you know presbyteros and episcopos are could be used synonymously, but um, because of these prudential reasons for the sake of order and this whole issue of the quality of rank, uh, you can actually have one of those rise up to a kind of more governing position. That he's going to be very careful to qualify exactly what right. a can and can't do, what they can and can't look like, how they behave. 
but nevertheless, he's still pretty okay with it, it seems like. Well, and even like, so he'll say things like, in order to correct evil, they gave these canons, or he'll say, um, uh, he'll admit that it's a custom and not like a direct word from the Lord, but he'll say like, well, it was kind of for a good reason. Um, To meet the needs of the time, for example, in page 1069, it's a a human agreement, but it meets the needs of the time. It's not the Lord's actual arrangement, but a custom, he says on the same page. Um, Or superior to the presence, okay, according to the custom of the church then, but yeah. So it looks like he says something to that effect anyways. So it's almost interesting. It does feel a little bit more like the English Reformation style here. Yeah. He's saying, yeah, well, custom's not the word of God, but it accords with scripture and... It was useful in order to meet a need. And I even uh, would say like in Geneva, it's interesting. Uh, my memory tells me that um, the way in which they distribu- distributed monies to the poor was actually through the city's civil system and not directly through like the diaconate from like the local church per se. So Calvin in practice seems to be okay with sort of modifying the, like exactly the, uh, the form of, of church government, of church administration to meet the needs of the day. Yeah. And he, but he gets in when he, when he starts talking about the office of the deacon on 1072. Uh, from there, he, he goes right into the whole issue of like, it's the deacons who were the ones who were actually caring for the poor, right? Mm. Um, that uh, under the bishop, he says on 1073, they were the stewards of the poor. Mm. So the bishop was the one who kind of had this oversight. And then you had the deacons and the deacons then had the primary task of making sure that the monies that are coming into the church are, are being adequately distributed, which is, yeah. and he's going to contrast in the next chapter right. with the bishops who are then taking all this money and power and prestige to themselves. And he's saying, no, 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 the early church bishops were not doing that. So, I mean, it seems like the underlying subtext here is that he is really setting up, you know, the early church as a bit of a foil for his right. critique then of the papacy. Uh, yeah, so, so on page 1070, he says, that, you know, the presbyters and the, and the bishop, they devoted themselves to warden sacraments since the deacon yeah. money it was really interesting to me. Um, he also said on page 1071, actually, that the bishop was to feed the people the word of God. But here's what's really interesting to me is that um, basically he has a, a timeline and it ends at about 600. So on page 1071, for even in Gregory's time, when the church had well nigh collapsed, surely had deteriorated much from its ancient purity, it was not tolerable for any bishop to refrain from preaching. So he basically says, by the time you get to around 600, uh, the church is is beginning, is kind of collapsing. Um, And so he he does sort of have, it seems like a little bit of the Dark Ages trope. Not that he would use that language, but from 600 to like 1400, it's not very good in his mind. But although he, he, of course, he loves Bernard of Clairvaux from yeah, the th- uh, who's in the thousand. So it's not quite that simple with him, but he does appear to see like the destruction around 600 of, of, of like good church. Yeah, and then from there on, it's just kind of, it's uneven everywhere. Maybe it's just the beginning of the end or something like that. It's a cool yeah. quote that he, cool quote that he, he gives uh, in reference to, to, I think it is to Gregory right there, right after what you just said. Um, I like how he, he says a bishop, he says somewhere. He's like, I can't really remember where, but. Uh, he says, a bishop, he says somewhere, dies if no sound is heard from him, for he calls upon himself the wrath of the hidden judge if he goes about without the sound of preaching. That's, a, that's an awesome quote. I'd love to find that in Gregory, probably in his pastoral. Yeah, but it could be. Uh, is, a, that's wow, the same Gregory that has the Moralia too, right? Uh, I, can't, I can't remember to be honest. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so it's an interesting kind of historical read, and and you can and you can tell like because he's so approving of the early church, you can tell like Calvin's like these are my people. Yeah. Um, and then again, we don't we kind of talked. We don't need to go deep into chapter five because it's it's basically him just saying the current church doesn't match those standards, and therefore it's it's wrong, yeah. and the reformed church is right, <laughs> basically, yeah. right? Like that's the implication throughout. But yeah, it's fascinating that he. So I'll put it this way: that he, Calvin seems to have a more positive view to of the early church than many evangelicals today but he seems to have a sort of muted or unspoken disdain of the medieval church that probably goes too far because the medieval church is so diverse and across so much geography that there's there's good and bad everywhere you go and he doesn't really seem to kind of allow for that diversity of of good and bad i mean i would put it this way like if you go to north america right now and you're like are the baptist churches in the u.s or canada good you like, well, there's many good churches and there's many bad churches. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't say it's all bad or all good. And I think maybe Calvin could probably have added that, <laughs> but it doesn't fit his polemic. So, yeah. And I mean, in, in number five, I mean, he really, he, he is just kind of hitting at the things that are pretty, pretty standard fare for a Protestant to be critical of the, of the church with, um, yep. you know, so, how, so, he, cause it's funny, you, you can find a theme of, of social justice if you want to put it in that kind of hot button category uh, uh sorry did you use the word social justice you sorry, must be woke i'm totally i'm a marxist and yes 100 you must be a marxist yeah um but you know he's he's talking about how you have on uh, under number seven on 1074 you've got what he calls this which actually i found really confusing a fourfold division of revenues and this was another one i was trying to figure out what was going on here because he says uh, you have these four parts, and then he says one for the clergy, which is part of the revenue, another for the poor, third for the repair of churches and other buildings, a fourth for the poor, both foreign and indigenous. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's got poor, and then he's got poor listed again. Hmm. And when he gets down to the end of it, uh, he gives a, he gives something, oh, where is it? from? I think it's from Jerome. Uh, who says the same thing, but then doesn't use exactly the same fourfold category and doesn't have the repetition of the poor. So I'm like, why is he emphasizing the poor twice here? Um, yeah, I see that. So the quotes is it four portions, bishop um, and his household for hospitality. Maybe the hospitality for the poor. Maybe that's what it is. No, because what he does is he, he, he makes a distinction. Um, I was digging into this a little bit. And so you've got the bishop in his household. So that's his salary. Okay. And then hospital, and then he's got for hospitality and maintenance. Sorry, that's, that's what it is. So how he can use his money for, for the, uh, for the good. Then the, the clergy are separate from the bishop. Oh, right. Uh, oh. Cause you've got a semicolon there. So you've got the bishop, but then you have the rest of the clergy who also need to be supported. Then you have the poor and then you have repair of churches and that who's that come from that comes from Gregory. That's who it was. Hmm. So it's it's another fourfold distinction, but it's, and then I, so I was like digging in and I, I pulled up uh, my battles analysis here, uh, trying to figure out what the heck was going on, and uh, it's the same. He he describes it uh, in his summary. He says the fourfold di- division of revenues, uh, and then he says there's greed and w- wicked examples necessitated a canonical rule of dividing property, one to the clergy, one part to the poor, one to the repair of churches one part for the poor foreign and indigenous but he never really like explains why there's the repetition so maybe one of our listeners knows and we'll wait for the comment but someone will answer the question yeah Yeah. someone will know there might be some 
distinction between the kinds of poor, I guess. Yeah. Um, but boy, wasn't wasn't like the way he describes the early churches. I mean, those examples are awesome, right? Where like Ambrose, yeah. he's like he's like melting down. Was it him that was melting down? Uh, um, I think it's on the well, top of ten seventy six. He says Ambrose states about himself: for when the Arians reproached him for having broken the sacred vessels uh, to ransom prisoners. He used this wonderful excuse. He who sent out the apostles without gold also gathered churches without gold. The church has gold not to keep, but to pay out and to relieve distress. What need uh, to keep? What helps not? Or are we ignorant of how much gold and silver the Assyrians uh, carted off from the temple of the Lord? He goes on. But that's cool. So the Arians are all mad at Ambrose for, you know, misusing in their mind, you know, these uh, gold plates and stuff and right using it to, to help prisoners he, yeah and then he says after that would it be not better to melt it and sustain the poor because you're yeah that's that's pretty the, the the amount of quotation that kelvin uses you can really tell that he is he feels comfortable with these authors like it doesn't yeah, yeah. i don't feel like he is as comfortable with some of the eastern authors to be honest um but maybe that's not his point maybe it's just the western guys because he's talking about the western church because he doesn't really seem to be citing the, the Greek fathers too. I mean, Cyril for I guess Cyril, yeah, that would count. Cyril, he likes, the, Cap- he likes the Cappadocians for sure. Yeah, but he hasn't. Yeah, he does like the Cappadocians, but he's, it, it almost feels like guys like Ambrose and Jerome and Augustine are sort of yeah. Augustine for sure. Yeah, him and Augustine are like best buds for life. Yeah, it's cool how he gets into like what he calls the clerics, right? So the cleric, mm-hmm. like we think of a cleric today, and that's just somebody who's ordained to holy orders mm-hmm. um whereas he's using the term cleric here is really like part of that preparation so if you're in training to become an, an ordained minister you would then be considered a cleric and uh and he and it, it's really kind of neat and practical um so if you are you know a pastor in a church and you've got a young guy that you want to train up that might one day become a pastor reading um book four chapter four number nine the preparatory, preparatory stages of the office was really cool um because he's saying how like how you can kind of mentor um you know uh he says afterwards they were called acolytes on 1077 to assist the bishop in household tasks and continually to accompany him first for honor's sake that no suspicion might arise moreover that they might gradually become known to the people and acquire commendation for themselves and at the same time learn to be seen by all and to speak before all that when they when made presbyters they might not be covered with shame when they came forward to teach uh, they were given opportunity to read from the pulpit. So he's saying, here's all these ways that like you could get a guy doing stuff such that then when it's time for him to maybe become the pastor or assistant pastor in your church, everybody kind of knows him and sees his gifts and, you know, knows what he's capable of. So it's just not like out of the blue. And I thought, oh, that was kind of neat advice. You, you know, I'm having a moment uh, where I just an, feel a little an bit. An epiphany? An epiphany. No, no. <laughs> Eureka. Eureka. No, no. A moment of um, just an overwhelming gratitude in the sense of like, can you imagine, so we live, right, you and I, in whatever, 2021, and Christ has grown his church, the Holy Spirit has, has uh, led it. We have hundreds and thousands of these theological and historical documents that just help us to think through life and how to follow the Lord and, and examples and what's, what's a good ecclesiology, what, what says it for failure uh, and what says it for success and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just interesting, like how much resources we truly have. And if, yeah. if you... If you spend a year learning Latin, then you have it all basically in the West because you can just go online. It's all out of copyright. If you learn a year or two learning Greek, you can do the same. Okay. It's going to be longer than a year for honest to be able to read fluently. But you get my point. Like it's just, yeah. just interesting. And then we're we're just sitting here reading Calvin, who's uh, 
roughly 500 years ago writing this in, in Geneva. Yeah, you wrote about this edition in Geneva, yeah. for sure. Um, so it's just, it's just an interesting thing. And then he's quoting from Theodoret, Gregory. It's just it's just wild to think about. Yeah. And and I wonder, like, you know, we've there's all these... Um, it's a kind of cliche now to talk about maybe celebrity pastors and all this emergent stuff, but, like, so many people want to just restart. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. with nothing behind. And uh, I've been really impressed. I finished a, a Roger Scruton book recently. Ooh, which one? Um it's an invitation to conservatism. Uh, I can't oh, okay. remember. I think it's just called uh, being conservative or something like that. Yeah. It's the, is it the white one with like a yeah, really nice exactly. Yeah, that's a great one. And just like the idea of being, of being a conservative, this analogy in front of is, is accepting as gift, the whole set of things that have come before you, not to rare, keep it rarefied or, or keep it in stone, but then to adapt it for the current situation. Yeah. And, and for us, like, I think a lot of us just think it's just me and the Bible, man. Yeah. That's the evangelical you know, like, way the evangelical way but i mean the bible says the holy spirit inspires teachers to edify and, and grow the church so maybe you should listen to those teachers that the holy spirit has um what is i can't remember the word but has as or not ordained whatever ephesians says anyways the holy spirit appoints yeah. um so it's just it's just fascinating to me anything else here that seems really i mean chapter five again is pretty straightforward but um yeah I, let's talk real quick for a second about um on 1078 when he gets okay. into I guess really starting at the bottom of 77 um, where he's talking about how, how, how you go about the ordination process Ooh, good, here, yeah. here you have like in a kind of seed form, a, a bit of a de democratic approach to things, right? That again, he's going to pull from the early church as an example, uh, example. Uh, but you know, this whole idea of like the role of the consent of the people in being able to actually be a part of the ordination process for somebody. Right. And so he says, um, where is it? Uh, yeah, right, right on that kind of first beginning, that, that first actual paragraph. Yeah, seventy-eight. The third point, he says. Yeah, that's right. As for our third point, who ought to ordain ministers? Uh, they, that is the early church, did not always follow one procedure. In ancient times, no one was received into the assembly of clergy without the consent of all the people. And then he quotes, references Cyprian. Uh, right. Basically makes excuses for appointing a certain guy without consulting them. So that obviously points to the norm. Cyprian's like, sorry, I broke from the norm. I had to ordain this guy under this certain system. Right, right. Not everybody was involved. Um, but I thought that was kind of kind of interesting in that, again, um, the the late medieval Catholic Church is not doing this. And so this is the foil that he's setting up here uh, because the people have nothing to do with that ordination process. But nevertheless, I thought it was kind of really cool. You know, he says afterward in the remaining orders also except the episcopate, the people commonly left it to the bishop and presbyters to set and recognize. So it develops, again, for prudential reasons that, yes, they're, you know, people are representing the people are going to mm -hmm. be a part of this whole thing. Um I think on page 1080, his expansion, because he talks about the Laodicean council on right. uh, section 12. And he says, a pretty important council for this whole thing. Well, I think it's just fascinating. The way, well, a couple things are fascinating now that I see it is, is one, he's showing the diversity that he talked about, I guess, or, or, the, or an advancement, but also that he's, he thinks this is good. These advancements, these, yeah. these modifications. So here's what he says. It was with very good reason. I confess that the council of Laodicea decided not to leave election to the multitude. Sorry, Baptists, uh, for it scarcely ever happens that so many heads can unanimously settle any matter. And it is generally true that the uncertain crowd is divided into contrary interests. But an excellent remedy was applied to this peril. So basically, then the, the clergy would appoint candidates and then uh, I think they would be voted by the by the multitude after that. Is that right? Yep. So kind of an yeah. elder led uh, sort of an elder ruled model. 
Yeah, he says, he says right in that same section, after the people's desires were heard, the clergy then made their choice. Okay. Then, yeah. then who, who else in the ancient world had to put a stamp of approval on 1081? Hmm. Very interesting, right? So who has to put the stamp of approval on the ordination process? Actually, the magistrate, um, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and so he says, uh, the emperor's consent on the bottom of 1081 to the rest of our knowledge was required in only two churches, Rome and Constantinople, because they were the two imperial capitals. Capitals, yeah. Uh, but he goes on, he says, um, uh, at the end of that section there, uh, at the beginning of 1082, for it is one thing to deprive the church of its own right so that the whole is transferred to one man's whim and is another to yield this honor to a king or emperor that he may confirm a lawful election by his own authority. So, so just a few years before this edition, no, sorry, it's actually after this edition, the Council of Trent. Actually, I actually can't remember because there's canons throughout, so it might be before or after. Yeah. The, um, well, the, Trent, Trent met for a very long time. Yeah, met for a very long time. So, but, so I don't know the exact time, but it's around this when it's written. So the Trent released a, a finding that said basically priests, because they have authority from God, are not accountable to the prince. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. And the Reformed rejected that entirely because yeah. Christ reigned. Well, I'm putting words in their mouth. I don't know all the becauses, but they, they rejected that and said, look, you have duties to the magistrate and duties to Christ in the church's administration. There's a, there's a single overlapping reign. So um, it's an interesting thing that we've, in our present day, we've almost flipped back and we've taken the Roman church's position that the magistrate or any, anything in creation that's outside of the church has no sort of authority in any way to infringe upon any kind of rights of those who worship, which is not reformed, actually, no. it's, yeah, in the it, absolute it, way, at least. That, that's the emphasis on the magisterial of the magisterial yeah. reformation is, is the role of the magistrate, which he's saying is actually just we, we've got that precedent for us in the early church. It's just fascinating because, you know, this whole debate that's going on, especially up, up with you guys up in Canada over mm-hmm. over the role of of like the civil government, what they can and can't say about um, churches um, and what, what, what a church should or shouldn't do. And there's one article I won't name names, but there's one article. It was just I mean, it was just a butchering of history i mean i was so irritated by this article it's like not one source was cited it was so bad basically like, the government never ever in church history has ever had any kind of role like this over the church it's like are you kidding me like who who is it that presided over the council of nicaea it was constantine like how could you say this and here you got calvin right making exactly the same sort of point you know it's like the the magistrate is really important has an important role to play you know, it's what we call the care of religion or cura religionis. I mean, this was his role as part of a minister of God. There's a, it was Polyander in the Leiden, um, the Leiden consensus. I can't remember the year offhand, 1600s, who basically says there should be the greatest. The harmony. Leiden, do you mean the Leiden synopsis? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, sorry, synopsis. It's the, uh, it, there should be the greatest harmony between the two administrations of Christ's reign through church and creation. Yeah. I, I'm using my own language, but the harmony is, is his language. And uh, it's true in the sense of like, look, we, we have a, if you're a citizen of a country, if you're a human being, you have a duty to all people that is a natural duty that you don't escape. When you're saved, you have a gracious duty to the church and to Christ that perfects that natural duty within your community. So that there's no poor among you in the church, you take care of widows, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't mean that you just, like, let me put it this way. Once you become a Christian, you're family and your wife still matter that natural good doesn't disappear grace does not destroy nature and yet so many people on two sides on on different sides of the platform are trying to do this you have 
they're, they're really like hyper grace. People are like the natural family doesn't matter. We're all the, you know, one family and God and you're like, well, both matter in different yep. ways. One, yep. according to the order of creation, one, according to the order of grace it's nature and grace. And then, of course, you have others who are, just want to destroy the family for their other kind of progressive reasons. But the, the, the balance that Calvin, Augustine, all these guys have is there are natural, like marriage is a natural good. Magistrates are natural goods. They don't get destroyed. In fact, uh, and that's one of the reasons the reformers rejected the Eucharistic theology of the, of the transubstantiation. And it, it is plausibly a reason why they rejected the, uh, the authority of the priests over the princes. Yep. I don't know if I can make that line perfectly drawn i have to look at the sources more but i mean it would fit at least yeah it's interesting even just thinking about the word priest for a second there it, you know and it's an argument from silence but note what he one of the offices that he doesn't sanction <laughs> is the office of the priest right fair uh, presbyters the bishops and that uh, of course because he would hold to a view of the priesthood of believers and so that's that goes without saying we're all priests not by ordination but by by well he would say by baptism i guess but interesting. <laughs> we'll have some fun baptismal theology. Okay, any last words before we close down for today? I think this is kind of a, a little fun summary, and I think yeah. it gets us back into it. And we'll probably the next two chapters next time. I can't remember offhand the actual reading plan at this moment, but yeah, I guess my only final comment would just be I just actually really appreciated Calvin's yeah. balance here and his kind of openness. Now, again, he's using this as a bit of a hammer in the next chapter on the Catholics, right? But you know, that hammer is pretty. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that is useful when you read guys like Calvin, remember, they're people in a specific time point in history. And so you should expect them to be who they are. And, you know, it's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, if they're going to be like, if you lived in 1822, you don't need a hammer on the Catholics, probably. So you won't see that. But if you live in, you know, 1540s or 15, uh, was it 59, this one? Yeah, you probably have to because they're literally down the road. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or at least in walking. Well, at this time, maybe not so much in Geneva anymore, but they're they're close. All right. Cool. Thanks, friend. We'll see you next time. Cheers.